everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and Happy New Year. It's 2023, and I thought I would start off the year by doing something a little bit different. Obviously, this podcast is all about music, and I thought, how could I bring a little bit of my love for movies into this episode today. And I thought I would talk about one of my favorite directors, John Hughes. He's done a lot of films in his career that are so iconic and they're amazing coming of age stories. And even if you're an adult watching these films, you can still resonate with these messages in his films. And there's just something for everyone. Not only that, but his movies are really funny. Genuinely, like they're such great films and the music in the films is what I'm going to be talking about, um, which obviously ties into the whole music aspect of this podcast. But it's just so amazing how John Hughes was so revolutionary and how he interwove music into his films. And he made it so unique, unlike it was ever done before. And it was done since because he created a blueprint for how directors should really consider how to put the best music into the story to make it not just a song that's going to get commercially successful. It's a song that actually impacts the story and the story is impacted by the song. So the two go hand in hand. Now, if some of you are unfamiliar with John Hughes and some of the films that he's done, let me just give you some examples of the movies he's done and then some of the songs that weren't popular at the time that were made specifically for the film that are now extremely popular. So Sixteen Candles was one of his uh, first films. Molly Ringwald was in this film and Anthony Michael Hall was in this film. The song If You Were Here by the Thompson Twins plays at the very end of the movie and that's one of their famous songs. The Breakfast Club is probably one of his most famous movies and the song that accompanies that Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds is the song that I think most people think about when they think about John Hughes and they think about a song from a movie soundtrack. Um, Another one he did was Weird Science, again with Anthony Michael Hall, and the song Weird Science was done by the band Oingo Boingo. I would say Pretty in Pink is probably the second most popular movie he's done next to The Breakfast Club in terms of how successful the songs that came out of that movie were. The Psychedelic Furs did the song Pretty in Pink, which became their biggest hit. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, they had a song called If You Leave, which played at the end of the film which became their number one biggest hit. He also had a couple of other British bands in there, um, like the Smiths and New Order. He also had Otis Redding in there, which was really unique and different. That became also very popular because of a scene that is done by John Cryer. If you haven't seen the film, it's really funny. Um, But there's that in there. In Excess was also on the film soundtrack. Um, So those are just some examples. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is also one of his top three most famous movies of all time, alongside the song that is definitely only known (laughs) because of Ferris Bueller, Oh Yeah by Yellow. Um, It's played kind of throughout the film, but definitely at the very end of the movie it's played, but it's played like throughout the entire film and it was made for the film. So those are just some of the really popular movies that he's done that had equally as popular songs that came about from the films. Some other films that he's done in his repertoire, just in case you don't know, because honestly, his work needs to be brought to the centerfold again, because I think John Hughes and his films are kind of being forgotten in the new generation of kids growing up today, and we need to bring these back. Um, So some of the other movies that he wrote, some kind of wonderful Planes, Trains, and Automobiles with John Candy and Steve Martin. 
She's having a baby with Kevin Bacon, I believe he's in that film. Uncle Buck with John Candy. Home Alone, the massively popular Christmas film with Joe Pesci and Macaulay Culkin. He did the screenplay for the live-action Disney 101 Dalmatians film in the 90s. He did Flubber. He did Made in Manhattan with J-Lo. And then one of the last films that he had contribution on for the script was Drillbit Taylor. He wrote that with Seth Rogen and Owen Wilson was in that film. Um, And that came out in 2008 and John Hughes passed in 2009. So that was one of the last things that he gave his name and talent to. Um, But those are just some of the films that he's done. There's a lot more that he's done. And if you haven't seen any of these films that are classics, you really need to. Like, I highly suggest you do. So I kind of wanted to give you some backstory as to who John Hughes was and how he came about to be a writer for film because it's actually really interesting. I didn't know anything about John Hughes and his backstory and how he grew up because it's really, it's kind of interesting. Like he came from like a kind of middle-class family in Chicago and his parents were very hypercritical of him, basically saying to him that you need to have a very prestigious career. That to him back in the day, like, you know, doctors, lawyers, or advertisers, or corporate jobs that his family would approve of. And for John, those things really wasn't what he was passionate about. Unfortunately, though, that is kind of what he fell into for the first 30 years of his life. And then at 30, he made a career change. Um, But as a child, he actually really loved British music. Like the Beatles was one of his favorite bands and he was an avid fan. Um, And he also knew a lot about movies at the time when some of his childhood friends saw later on in life that he was making movies and he was incorporating the music so strongly, especially with predominantly British artists in his soundtracks for films, it wasn't a surprise. It actually made a lot of sense because John was very keen on finding really unique music that no one had really heard of before. Like he was really into the niche music category, especially like alternative British music and things like that. So As a child growing up, like I mentioned, his parents were very hypercritical of him and of what John should do with his life. Um, So he went to the University of Arizona, but he dropped out. John then began selling his jokes. So John naturally was a very funny person, which you probably wouldn't think because apparently, according to a lot of people, John was like a seemingly very quiet person. But John also had like a really funny side about him, which is why his movies are so funny. So after he dropped out of the University of Arizona, he began selling his jokes to performers such as Rodney Dangerfield and Joan Rivers, basically to whoever he could get his jokes out to. And he used his jokes to get an entry-level job as an advertising copywriter in Chicago in 1970. So from 1970 up until the 80s, he was basically doing advertising for various companies like he was doing stuff for cigarette companies he actually came up with something that's very famous um, for edge shaving cream there was something that he did called the credit card shaving test where basically i saw this on youtube it's like a 30 second ad or something from 1977 where edge shaving cream was basically comparing their shaving cream to other shaving creams and how theirs was the best because they got the closest shave And you could tell that you got the closest shave because if you took a credit card and you ran it over your face, you could hear the stubble versus on the edge side. If you ran the credit card over your face, you didn't hear anything. So he came up with that, which is really unique and interesting in itself. Um, So he was doing that for a long time. 
and John's foothold in these other companies like cigarettes was a big one that he was doing campaigning work for because obviously cigarettes were very popular at the time. I think they're less so now, um, but back in the day, it was very like cool and popular to smoke. So his work with the cigarette companies took him to one of the main tobacco headquarters in New York called Philip Morris, which when he was here in New York, it allowed him to visit the offices of the National Lampoon magazine. But I had no idea that he took inspiration from actually that magazine and he used it for his film later on. Um, so he actually became a regular contributor to the National Lampoon magazine with his stories. Now, from what I understood, the National Lampoon magazine was kind of like funnies. Like, you know how back in the day, newspapers would have like the funnies on the back, like cartoons and comic strips and things. It was basically kind of like that. So he would write these really funny stories and jokes, um, like making people laugh and things. And there was an editor called J.P. O'Rourke who recalled that John wrote so fast and so well that it was hard for a monthly magazine to keep up with him. And this was also one of John's trademarks as well, that he would write so fast. Like he would get something out so quickly and so brilliantly that people were just like surprised at how quickly he could do it. Like, and he actually said in an interview in the 80s with MTV, I believe, that that's why he could get scripts out so fast, like in a turnover of a few days or a few weeks, because he applied the method of deadlines in his career with being a copywriter um, into filmmaking. Because with writing scripts, there's no deadline. You can write however long you need to write. But because John was so used to putting himself on a crunch for the deadline, for his advertising past in his career, he applied that same method to writing scripts. So he put the pressure on himself to write really quickly, but it worked for him because he could get these really funny classic movies out in a couple of days or a week or a couple of weeks, which was really impressive. So already he was showing this keen sensibility to just be quick on his feet and write something really funny really fast. It was actually one of John's first stories for the National Lampoon magazine that was inspired by his family trip that he took as a child, wherein this story was called Vacation 58, and this later became the basis for the film National Lampoon's Vacation. So this was one of the first films that John would end up writing, but again, just goes to show, like, he can really set himself up to be extremely popular with his writing because it actually resonates with a lot of people. The thing about John Hughes that also sets him apart is he was so good at writing about the ordinary mundane person. It's such a relevant, funny way that everyone can relate to, which is what makes it funny. You know, like if you write something that's not funny or relevant, then it ceases to be funny. But because he makes it so relevant to the everyday person, people can see themselves in the stories that he writes, and then it makes it more relevant and more interesting. So that's where John gets another leg up above like everybody else. So for a few years, this is what John was doing. And when he was 30, he made the change in his career. He was really sick of staying at the stuffy office job. And he thought always about writing for movies, but he never really thought that could be a possibility because his parents stifled his creativity from doing things like that and from pursuing a career like that. So at 30, he decided to change his career completely to then focusing on making films. And it was so interesting because John could see in the film market that there was this gap where people were writing films for adults, right? But they weren't writing films for teens and kids. And he saw this 
And he said, I can fill this gap in the market by writing stories that have to do with kids and with teens. His films are like teenage movies. They're teen films, but I think to sum it down and boil it down to his movies being called teen movies is kind of like, I think we can do better at that because like his films are actually really poignant because John really thought that people in Hollywood were not taking teens seriously. That, you know, why should we make a film about a teenager growing up in high school and doing all these things when no one cares about it? We just want to write movies for adults um, because that's more serious. And John saw this as a great disservice to teens and kids because kids and teens can't watch these movies and relate. So he tapped into the market of writing for teens and kids because the youth culture was growing up at this time in the 80s and they needed like people like them on screen to understand like what they were going through and if what they were feeling was normal and, you know, all the things that teens and kids go through that are like coming of age trying to figure themselves out in the world as they're getting older. And so John thought that those stories were really important to tell. And so he was the one that was going to spearhead that and tell those kind of stories. So it worked for him. And again, like some of the more famous ones that he did that were labeled as like teen movies were Pretty in Pink, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Ferris Bueller. And these films are some of the most famous movies of all time. So he was doing something right and he knew that he needed to stick to this method that he was doing because it was working. Another thing that set John apart from all the other directors in Hollywood at the time was when you were making a film for a movie back in the day, you would just find a song that was really popular at the time and stick it in the film. It was mostly just to like sell records and to sell albums, basically. It wasn't anything artistic or anything creative or altruistic to do with like, you know, making the film any better or anything like that. It didn't go hand in hand with the movie. It was just more of like a marketing ploy to put this really popular song into a film and then make money off of it, basically. But John saw this and he thought that that wasn't acceptable. And because John was already a massive music nerd and a film nerd at the same time, he married the two together and his method was actually really specific. He loved, again, alternative music and music that was not well known in America, uh, particularly like with British acts. He just loved that like new wave sound that was happening in England at the time. So he had his own record collection. He had his own cassette collection. He would make his own mixtapes. He would really try really hard to pair the perfect song with the perfect lyrical content to certain scenes in a movie he was writing. So it would actually make sense for the film. It wasn't just a song he picked up and plopped in the film and said, here's the soundtrack. He actually really cared about how he made the soundtrack for the films and the music that like revolved around these films and the plot for the films. Like he thought that was really, really, really important. Though he admitted during a 1986 MTV interview that his first choice of career would have been to be a rock star, he never allowed music to overtake the character or plot in his movies. He said, To have a song work for the movie, it can't just be written apart and shoved in. It's got to come out of the action. It's got to talk about the characters, not the story. It has to augment that action. And then John made it a very strict point to not use music in his films that were already commercially successful. He really wanted to be different because like 
you know, films back in the 80s, like, I don't know, Top Gun and Footloose and other ones like that, you know, they really just took songs that were popular and put them in their movie and said, here's the soundtrack. But that's not how John wanted to do it. John's music supervisor in the 80s, his name was Tarkin. I hope I'm saying that name right. Tarkin Gotch. He actually said that there were nostalgia films where the music was set to the date or there were commercial exploitations. John was looking for emotion. He wanted the music to tell the teenagers what they were feeling and he got it right. He made the music pop and he made the scenes better, which is true. Like if you watch all of these movies, like the music makes sense with the film and the plot for the film. It doesn't sound like it's out of place, which I can wholeheartedly appreciate because he just wanted to be realistic and he wanted to be authentic and he didn't want to be phony and fake because this is what John was seeing in Hollywood at the time. John would end up saying, I don't look at the album for the film as a marketing tool because I think if you do that, then you're going to fail. It's really betraying the music. When I approach a band, I want to respect them and be respectful of their music. I'm not going to say, look, you guys are real hot, so we'll stick you in the movie and we'll get it in all of these stores and all of these stations. That isn't right. Um, so yeah, he knew that this was all a big marketing ploy by all of these music companies and all these film companies to just sell more records and make more money. But John wasn't going to do that, especially because he was catering to a young audience. He was catering to the teens and to the kids. So he knew he had to be real and authentic with them. He wasn't just going to have them go out and buy these albums and, you know, use their hard-earned money on these albums that are just very on the surface. He was going to make them get their money's worth, basically. And also, you know, films back then, you know, to go and watch a film, you know, it, it wasn't super cheap. So he knew that he wanted to do right by the general public. He wasn't like for the big wigs in Hollywood. He was definitely a people person. He was for, like, he wanted to have, he wanted them to have a voice. And that's the mission that he set on when he went to do films, which I respect. So getting into more of the specifics um, in terms of like some of the songs that became really popular due to some of his films, one of the most iconic songs that John put into his films was the Simple Minds track, Don't You Forget About Me, which came out in 1985 for The Breakfast Club. So Simple Minds was a Scottish band and they weren't well known in the States, but after the movie, the single shot up to the top of the charts. John would say that Simple Minds worked for The Breakfast Club in the context of the film, even if you never bought the record. We didn't put the song on there to sell records. We put the song in there because it was part of the movie. You couldn't take that song out of the movie, couldn't take that movie out of the song. That's what I tried to do, not sell records. It's arguable whether a hit song is going to add to the business a film does. There are plenty of films that didn't do any business and sold a million albums. So how Don't You Forget About Me actually came about was kind of interesting. The writers, who were Keith Forsty and Steve Schiff, they were actually trying to copy the popular rhythm for the song Our Lips Are Sealed by the Go-Go's. That was a really popular song at the time, and they liked that rhythm. So they were trying to figure out how they could take that rhythm and kind of make it their own for this song. And the lyrical content, the story for the song itself, was actually inspired by a conversation in the film that happened between Anthony Michael Hall's character, and Judd Nelson's character. And this is really interesting because Keith Forsey would go on to say, when they were away from everybody else, the two of them actually recognized each other. It reminded me of when I was going to school. 
If you were in the school playground, the bad guys would be pretty bad to you. But if you met them at the bus stop in the morning, there was some bonding there. That was the reason I came up with Don't You Forget About Me. It was, don't forget, when we're back in the classroom, you're not just a bad guy and we've got other things in common. John Hughes really did it right. You know, he commissioned all of these artists to write songs for the film. That's what he would do. He would go to these bands that he already knew and liked and appreciated their music, which wasn't popular in America. He would say, hey, I have a film that I'm doing. Would you please write a song for this particular scene? Basically, that's how it would go. And then that's what came about from the soundtrack. The Breakfast Club made nearly $100 million at the box office, which adjusted for inflation for today. That's roughly $241 million, which is a lot of money. They only had a $1 million budget back when they were making this film, I believe in 1984, and it came out in 85. So they really made an incredibly popular hit movie. Like, they only went in with a million dollars, and they came out with nearly 100 million at the box office. And the song, Don't You Forget About Me, was their first worldwide hit reaching number one in the U.S. And like I said, it still is one of the biggest songs of the 80s. And it reminds you of the film every single time because it was for the film. I'm sure you guys probably thought maybe that was just a song they already had that was just put into The Breakfast Club, but nope. That was a song written specifically for the film. Now, going on to Pretty in Pink, the next film that he did. This came out in 1986. The Psychedelic Furs, they released a song called Pretty in Pink, and this was the theme song for the movie. And it also became one of their biggest hits, too. The film itself, Pretty in Pink, actually originally ended with a prom scene where Molly Ringwald's character, Andy, ends up going out with her friend, Ducky, who is played by John Cryer. And the soundtrack during that scene was done by the orchestral maneuvers in the dark and the song Goddess of Love was played. So that was actually a commissioned song that was done for the movie for John Hughes. And when they screen tested the film for an audience, the audience actually hated the ending so much that John impromptu rewrote the entire ending, where Andy then instead falls in love with the main love interest, Blaine, who's played by Andrew McCarthy. Um, Spoilers, I guess, for the film, if you haven't seen the film, but it's a good film. So Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark was the band that was working with John Hughes for Pretty in Pink. And so when the first ending was scrapped, they had to go back to the drawing board. So Paul Humphreys, who is one of the orchestral maneuvers members, he recalls that his bandmate and him had spent a couple months writing Goddess of Love. And he says, we flew over to Los Angeles ready to mix it two days before a major American tour kicked off. We got to the hotel and there was a message from John. He said, Listen, guys, I'm really sorry, but the song you've written doesn't work anymore because I've reshot the whole end of the film. Can you write a new one? The only thing he told us was, make the lyrics relevant to the end, and it has to be 120 beats a minute. And in only 24 hours, Paul and Andy came up with If You Leave, which ended up being the ending song for the film, and it ended up being one of their most popular songs. To be honest... That's one of the only songs that I can really think about that they've done. I know that they've done a lot of other songs since, but that's the only song I can really think of that they did that was really, really, really popular. So it goes to show they literally wrote it in a day and it was for the film specifically and it became a massive hit. 
And what's really interesting about this, too, that sets John Hughes apart in just another different area, when the band went to the premiere for the film, the official premiere, and the ending came on, they were astounded that John used the full, uninterrupted song from start to finish, basically. And at the time, in the 80s, it was apparently very unusual to have that be done because typically, like, maybe in a movie, you'd have, like, a snippet or a small sample of the song maybe playing for like a couple of seconds. Maybe the song would be interrupted by dialogue, so you couldn't hear the whole song or you couldn't hear all the detail in the song. But this one small difference of John playing the entire song in full without any interruption was actually something that set him apart even more in the best possible way. And nearly 40 years later, If You Leave is Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark's most streamed song of all time. So... It really goes to show how extremely revolutionary John Hughes was. I mean, these things, you would think they aren't extremely... Like, you think that it's like, okay, that makes sense. Like, why wouldn't you put a whole song in there for the audience to hear? Like, why wouldn't you put songs that make sense to the plot of the movie in your movie? But back then in Hollywood, that wasn't how it was done. It was like a very cookie-cutter way of making movies, especially in the 80s. That changed with John Hughes films, and then it shifted in the 90s, and then now it's very different to where there's like a curated soundtrack for each movie. But back in the 80s in particular, that really wasn't what it was at all. Um, That's just how film history goes. So for John Hughes, all these things that now in this day and age like makes the most logical sense Like, of course, why would you not do it like that? For back then, it was very revolutionary of him to do. What I actually thought was really fascinating, I didn't realize this, there's actually a box set that was done called Life Moves Pretty Fast, the John Hughes mixtapes, where it was the first ever official compilation of songs from all of John Hughes films done into one box set. There's like a CD box set. There's like a vinyl box set where it's literally all of the soundtracks to his most popular films done and put out as a compilation for the first time, Um, which is interesting. So his music supervisor, Taryn Gotch, he says about this, back when we were working on these movie soundtracks, the best way to send music around the world was cassettes by FedEx. We sent John cassettes of newly released music, of demos, of just finished mixes, and in return, he would send VHS videos of the scenes that needed music. John said he only made movies so he could choose what music to put in them. So as his success at the box office grew, and thus his power with the studios, the number of tracks in his films by up-and-coming UK bands steadily grew. So I think that's pretty fascinating that there literally is a box set of all of his soundtracks. I haven't heard such a thing happening with Quentin Tarantino, which... Interestingly enough, John Hughes's method for marrying the soundtrack to the movie was so revolutionary that modern directors like Wes Anderson, Quentin himself, and Cameron Crowe actually use his method of creating soundtracks specifically that fit with the theme of the film. So if you like Quentin Tarantino and you like the music he puts in there, he follows the John Hughes recipe. So... You have to thank the original creator, John Hughes, for doing that because there was literally no one else doing that at the time in such a major way. I'm sure that there probably were, especially maybe in the 70s or maybe the 60s or something. Um, But in the 80s, it was extremely very cookie cutter in how they were doing things. It was mostly, again, just to sell more records, just to make more money. 
it was like a factory. It wasn't making movies for the fun of it and to tell a proper story with something that you could take away from it with an important message. It was mostly just to make more money. But John Hughes quit his job and he thought to himself, I'm going to just do this career that I've always wanted to do and be happy and content and see where it goes. And he just by and by in every single facet made things so revolutionary and he changed the game and created a specific blueprint and how you make movies. And sure, his movies were targeted to teens and young people at the time, but he saw that no one was making films catering to that specific audience. And he did it so right by targeting that audience because young kids and kids going through this, you know, coming of age experience in their life as they're coming into their young adulthood, they're trying to figure out the world around them. They are the most lonely and they're the most in need of guidance. And so when you have like movies and films, which is easily accessible, I think, to maybe the most average person, you know, you can buy an album and you can resonate with the messages that are in that album and you can think, oh, wow, I'm not the only one going through something like this. Or you watch a movie and the main character is like the same as you and what they're going through is the same as you and you don't feel so alone anymore. Like John Hughes really did that. Like he really said, teens of America, this is you and this is what you're going through probably and what you're going through is normal and it's okay and I'm here to help you. He basically was kind of being like a white knight helping the kids because he could see that Hollywood was not taking them seriously and... How he interwove the music into his movies was very specific and curated. He almost like made mixtapes in a way or playlists for his movies, which is a very modern thing to do. So he was light years ahead of his time in the 80s. Um, So John actually stopped writing his own movies in the 90s, around 1991. But what I thought was really fascinating He would actually help to write scripts for other films and other directors and other writers that would come to him uh, and for his guidance. He didn't put his name John Hughes on it. He actually wrote these particular scripts under a pseudonym. And one of those films, like I mentioned, was Drillbit Taylor with Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen co-wrote that with John Hughes. But uh, that was one of the last things that he worked on until he passed away in 2009. So listen, if you're a fan of movies... If you're a fan of music, listen to the soundtracks of some of his films or some of the most popular songs that came out from his movies and watch his movies because genuinely they're really good. I could probably say the three that you gotta watch. The Breakfast Club is number one. Ferris Bueller's Day Off you gotta watch. And Pretty in Pink you gotta watch for sure. Or at least the top two, The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller. You have to watch those two. Those are probably the most important, pivotal movies like of all time, I would say. Like, They're really funny, but also the message that comes with those movies are very important. And you can have a takeaway from it, even as an adult. Um, You don't have to be a teenager going through those things to gain appreciation for his movies. I just think it's important that like we talk about him and how integral he was to the movie industry by and by at large because he was kind of like the forefather for how modern filmmaking is done just in a different way. Like, obviously, Quentin Tarantino doesn't do teen movies, but he follows John Hughes and his blueprint and what he did, especially intermingling the music with the film. Um, 
which is equally as important as the actual film and the directing itself. Marrying music with the film is so important because music tells the story as well. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is the story of John Hughes and the music that became so ever popular because of his films. I hope that you guys enjoyed and that you learned something today that you hadn't known about before. I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. <laughs>